space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Welcome back to Temporal Trek. We are in Season 1, Part 2 of the podcast. We're on Episode 5 already. And we are going to 1957, Season 2, Enterprise, the episode Carbon Creek. But before we get started, I've tuned my comms device in, and I believe I'm talking to Paul again. Paul, are you there? Yes, hello, Dan. It's nice to speak to you again. Wonderful to hear from you. It's always good to have guests on again. How are you, Paul? I'm absolutely fine, thank you very much. Uh, how, how's things uh, with you? Uh, have you had any any unpleasantness with Q recently? At the moment, I seem to be okay, Paul. Thank you very much for asking. At the moment, I'm still trapped in this bubble, but I've been accumulating a few things here and there, and hopefully it might help me get out of this, but I'm going to keep that on the down low for now. Right, with this episode, we are going to Enterprise, and I said we're going to Carbon Creek. But before we get started, Paul, as this is the first Enterprise episode I have ever watched with you, what are your general thoughts on Enterprise and your thoughts on Carbon Creek specifically? Well, funny thing is, um, I, when I first saw Enterprise, and I only saw it um, recently in the last uh, I don't know, three or four or five years maybe, um, because I, I, I totally missed it when it first came out, um, I actually thought it was good. But not as good as, and I can go through all of the other uh, all the other seasons of of Star Trek. Having said that, of course, this is an episode of Star Trek, so that makes it better than most things on TV, anyway. Um, so, although I, I I rank this as as not my favourite um, flavour of Star Trek, it's uh, it's still pretty decent. And I must admit that when you said you you were mentioning about Carbon Creek and, and coming on. I thought, yeah, I like that episode. That was a good episode. And I started thinking about the episodes in general and thinking, well, actually, there were more good episodes in there than I should than I normally give credit to. So I'm I'm sort of a sneaky feeling I might just go back and watch a few more. I know what you feel like. Um, it's only when I'm going back and watching these Enterprise episodes how many I'm actually enjoying. Um, I've just had two episodes ago the alternate history in 1944, the whole uh, the Nazis took over America uh, scenario, which may be very cliche, may be very played out, but it's really engaging. I mean, there are some scenes that drag on a little bit and they could just get on with it. But overall, it really pulls you in. There's There's something about that episode that just engages you in the same way this engages you as well. Yes, that's right. When I saw it, when I... Um got to that season and I thought, okay, oh, they've, you know, where are they going now? You know, what's, what's happening now? And the ship sort of takes a left turn and goes through a wormhole and suddenly, oh, not the Nazis again. Oh, come on. We've done this. We know, we've all watched the history channel. We know the Nazis were bad. We, we, we get it now, but, uh, no, I mean, it was okay, but it was not my favorite part of, uh, overall, uh, having said that when they go back to the, the good old, uh, West of America, you know, the old wild West and they do the North star episode. That is one of my favorite episodes of all time. So yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's good when they when they when when they sort of let themselves go a bit more and, and get out of what they're used to, and also get out of the studio a little bit as well. True, very true, very true. So that's Enterprise in general, but what about Carbon Creek specifically? Do you like Paul? Uh, Carbon Creek. Uh, the thing I like about Carbon Creek is it it sort of it, it sets up a nice little um, teaser as to whether this is true or not, but. It's the, it's the actual first contact. It's it's set in 1957. We already know that first contact is a long time after that. This, you know, the, and there is no reason why that there couldn't be a, a first contact before the official first contact. Um, and it's interesting that the Vulcans have have done this and then kept it all quiet. So um, yeah, it, 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 I like it because it's a, it is a survival thing. We've seen it done you know, many times before. Uh, in Star Trek with different, uh, different flavors and different, uh, series. Um, but, you know, but it, it is, uh, it, it is a likable episode because of that. Because it shows, uh, the Vulcans, you know, instead of the humans trying to survive in a, uh, somewhere else, it's down to the Vulcans to try and survive on Earth. Um, so it's good. I like it. 
no, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. I, th- I think for me, it, it invokes those things that you sort of learn after you leave school, where you know it's not Christopher Columbus who discovered America. You know, it's the Vikings, or it's it's a, def- a different explorer hundreds of years before. It, it's those things that you you seem to learn after you're out of the history class. Uh, and I like the idea that there is a secret history that the Vulcans have had this whole time and they just didn't bother to tell the humans that, oh, actually, it's not the first time we were around. We've been around for ages. And of course, I mean, if we take all of Star Trek canon, this isn't really even the first contact with a alien race. Um, there have been several already before that uh, have been on this podcast. Uh, the first really technically being Guinan, so Elorians being the first. We just didn't notice because she looks so human. Uh, but I think this is the first time that general populace, you know, that uh, people have met a Vulcan but just didn't realise. All for the sake of a hat. <laughs> yes, or a combing of the hair. And a nice little callback, I think, to, to the previous time we spoke with City on the Edge of Forever. Um, and we can talk about that when we, we go through the episode. But I did like how it's all down to a little bit of clothing, cover the ears, and you're all fine again. Yes, that's right. It's so simple, isn't it? It's like Superman wearing a pair of glasses. Yeah, nobody ever notices. Nobody questions the eyebrows that are perfectly lined all the way up to the hat. But there we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he must be Chinese. <laughs> That's a good explanation, actually, yeah. Uh, right, okay, let's get started on the episode. Uh, we begin at uh, 3 minutes and 58 seconds into the episode when we see a Vulcan shuttle over in orbit as a piece of metal with some wires sticking off it is also orbiting the planet. And that is Sputnik 1. Sputnik 1 from 1957. So that gives us our year. So we're going to pause here and we're going to do the history bit. Now... I'm always trying to be a little bit more localised with history. If we've got a specific region, try and keep it to that. Pennsylvania is where the Carbon Creek is meant to be set, and it's 1957. Unfortunately, everything I try and find out about this region and period of time doesn't give me a lot to go on. There's a lot of uh, churches being constructed. The Bell Telephone Company in the US uh, is, is being built, so the headquarters of a major telephone company is built at this time. But really, as far as Pennsylvania is concerned, I didn't find a lot of specific time-referenced information. So I'm going to go to world history. Because the shuttle was over in the orbit, we're going to look look at some other events in history. Uh, at the beginning of the year, you had uh, Mao Zedong, who uh, uh, pulled all the people together in China and starts to make these communes in China. So he's trying to bring the peasants together and establish a, a new power base in the country. Of course, we see Sputnik in orbit, so you've also got the USSR effectively starting this uh, space race that will lead to the Grand Federation in my reality, and uh, to uh, the space race and man walking on the moon, of course. But right now, all that's up there is a tiny metal ball with some wires on it. Later in the year, you would also get Sputnik 2, as Russia was really powering ahead past the Americans. Uh, now, I know that we love geeky stuff, Paul. I know we've we saw, we've talked about quite a lot of things. The space race is one of my, my favourites, as I imagine you also enjoy as well. Any other things to say about the space race in general? It doesn't have to be about Sputnik. Uh, yeah, one of my biggest heroes uh, comes from the space race. Uh, his name is Gene Krantz, who was the... Um, oh, what was his title now? He was the mission, mission controller for um, Apollo 13, but he'd also been a uh, mission controller for a long time before that, um, even going back to the Gemini. He started in the Gemini project. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got his book uh, here in my hand. It's called Failure is Not an Option, which I'm sure you've you've heard of if you've seen the film um, Apollo 13. Uh, the guy is amazing. I have yet to read that book, but he is, he is one of my big heroes. Uh, what, you know, things, talk about pressure, how to work under pressure. Um, the, the actual, it's amazing what humans can do when they really put their minds to it and when they really, you know, and money is there as well, the funding is important. Um, but to, to have a, a space program like that and it was through the space race that it was, that it was really sort of con, uh, contrived, um, it's just, it's, it's amazing what has been achieved and what is still being achieved uh, these days. So, um, 
yeah, it is uh, one of my biggest, and I've, I've got that from my dad as well. He loves it as well because he obviously was was born, uh, uh, you know, around that time, and and it was all he lived through it. So I mean, I'm just looking at the history of it, but um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It's amazing, and and I, I love it. And it, it it makes perfect sense that the Vulcans would be interested that. Uh, regardless of where it came from on the planet, they are seeing the first steps into space. So, you know, it may just be a piece of metal up there, but it's still an important step. The Russians may have got there first, and the Americans were desperately trying to catch up, but it's still an important step. It may not be people, but really good for the Vulcans to sort of try and study us and see why we might be a bit interesting. Other than that, we've got some other references. I suppose the biggest sort of cultural uh, person who sort of comes up at this time, as far as a cultural touchstone, a big celebrity, you can't really go much further than the king himself, Elvis Presley. Uh, He releases Jailhouse Rock, All Shook Up, as many others as well. There are lots of cultural icons at this time. You've got Buddy Holly still kicking around. Uh, but the king, Elvis Presley, you can't go anywhere in the 1950s without thinking about him first. Uh, Tchaikovsky finishes uh, Symphony Number no. 7. This is actually brought up in the episode. There is uh, a big push to improve nuclear weapons. So even though we've seen the space race, which is you know exploring and everything like this, of course there is the Cold War going on in the background that is driving it. And the Americans, whilst also having their space program, are trying to improve their atomic capabilities. It's in the episode where there is a small uh, clip of nuclear testing going on in Nevada, but uh, this is Operation Plum Bomb. Uh, So uh, everything from, I think, March to October, if I remember my notes correctly, yes, um, uh, they are testing out new kinds of weapons. Now, Sputnik was launched in October of the year, so the Vulcans crash landing in Carbon Creek happens around October so them seeing footage of what's going on they've seen the operation already happen so it's not happening as the Vulcans are there but they're seeing these tests going on so it was a nice sort of call back and unlike the previous episode which we just had with Jarman um, there was actual nuclear testing so for them to actually see it makes perfect sense but unlike the last episode where there was no nuclear test but somehow they managed to get back in time because of it Um, right we're going to get on to the episode. So back in, we started at 3 minutes 58 seconds. Other than really um, a lot of conversations, all we see is the shuttle has some, some problems and is going to crash land. We come out at 4 minutes 29 seconds with a narration going on by Topol from Enterprise. And we find out that she's actually talking about her grandmother, Tamir. We come back at 4 minutes 39 seconds. The uh, shuttle has crashed in an isolated area. There are only three survivors, although at this time we actually, we're not actually given the characters' names, but uh, we are given later that it is Mistral, and we're also given a nice little nickname for Mo, because he looks like uh, one of the... Uh, I see Paul laughing there. Um, one of the, uh, the Three Stooges, and he really does. I, I hadn't actually noticed it, and I'd forgotten this little quirk in, in the actual episode. It did make me laugh. How about you, Paul? Yeah, that was funny, that. Yeah, I, I had forgotten that part. Uh, but yes, <laughs> he did look at uh, the, the old bold haircut. Yeah, that was good. I, I just like the idea that there, there will be a Vulcan now just called Mo. We don't really find out his name the whole way through, but he's just called Mo. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Tamir, uh, Topol's grandmother, according to the story, is in charge, and we come out at 5 minutes 58 seconds. We come back at 6 minutes 55 seconds, and they're starting to say it's been six days without food. So we're getting massive time jumps as we go through the episode. Now, this happens quite a few times. Um, Paul, when you're watching this episode, do you feel it's apparent that there are big time jumps, or do you feel like it, the direction wasn't quite there? Because there's a six-day time jump, a three-month time jump, and I think another six months after that as well. Do you feel like there was enough difference in the episode? I, I must admit, I didn't notice the time jumps. Um, it, I think um, maybe I'm, I'm used to seeing this sort of TV, um, you know, especially you know. Back in the day, back in the you know the sixties and well, not even the sixties really, the seventies and eighties, time means nothing in, in TV in TV terms. You have to assume that there is a period of time between things. Uh, I am unfortunately watching the um, the episode um, on a um, 
how can I put this, a slightly dubiously uh, obtained uh, MP4 file, uh, which has all of the adverts, obviously there's no advert breaks on the DVDs or Netflix, but um, they've cut the advert breaks out. They've also cut the titles out and the end titles as well. So all I get is the the actual episode um, with no breaks. So it's harder to see when the breaks are. And uh, so, so theoretically, right. I, should, I should be totally lost. I didn't spot any any uh, breaks. It was obvious to me that there's there's gaps in between, as is with many episodes of different types of TV going you know going way back. Uh, you know, there's a period of time between each each clip or whatever. Or if, if there's a nice little sort of um, you know, bit in the script where it might say, "Oh, remember when a couple of weeks back when we did this or whatever," but um, but no, I did I didn't notice that there was um, time periods in between. It was just a story being told by Tapal, so it sort of it flowed. I thought it flowed okay. No, that that makes perfect sense. Um, the only thing that really struck me is that because they're in Pennsylvania, because they've obviously arrived in October, when you look around, it's quite sunny. It looks like it's summertime. And, you know, we're given six days, they're in the forest, there's no snow, there's not even the hint of autumn, everything is green around them. They even spot some deer and have a whole debate about whether they eat the deer or uh, maybe they should try and stick to their principles and be uh, vegetarians, which was a lovely little callback to my previous season when um, uh, Spock was uh, consuming flesh because he had to survive in the the snowy um, uh, regions of another planet. But... After six days, they they were looking around, but life seems to be okay. Obviously, over the course of the episode, they're there for months on end. We should have gone through all of the dead of winter, but it's still summer outside. Now, maybe we can write that off to, uh, to you know, Tamir to, to told the, the story in such a way that it didn't actually, you know, give to Paul any idea of what the weather was supposed to be like. But at some point, I would have thought that Vulcans from a really hot planet would have really hated the cold. Any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's a bit strange, that one. Speaking of the debate they did have about eating deer, uh, there's also a, a debate about the Prime Directive. You know, how much are they going to get involved? Do they try and go into town, try and find something to survive with? And Mo, the Vulcan, says better to leave them with a, a mystery than to find, you know... Um, uh, all of them dead and, and uh, you know, to have that sort of uh, unanswered question rather than get involved and possibly change history uh, and reveal themselves as aliens, which is really interesting because last episode we obviously had the Roswell conspiracy and everything like that. What do you think, Paul? Would it have been better to leave them with a mystery and three dead alien bodies and a space crash, uh, spaceship or stay alive, try and stay under the radar, and prevent people from finding their shuttle. No, I think it's uh, both. Um, <laughs> both options are quite tricky, really. I mean, it is a hard thing. You've got a spaceship that's crashed in the, in, in, you know, that may or may not be found. It's out in the uh, in the hills. You know, it's um, you know maybe maybe somebody's not going to you know come up to this place. Although they do say they're about an hour's walk away, so that's about three. Well, maybe two miles through through bushes and things to the nearest town. So they're not too far away from a, a, um, a, you know, an area where hunters may come for, to, to try and kill the deer. Um, so, yeah, do you you bury, bury the ship and then hide your dead and then sort of survive as long as you can and then, well, who the last person can't really sort of bury themselves, so that's a bit awkward. Um, or do you try and live amongst them and, and get away with... Uh, being human as, as best you can, I think. I think that's probably the better way. Um, although it is fraught with with danger, and but the fact that uh, Mistral must have done it at some point, um, uh, it seems to suggest that he did get away with it. Yeah, and and obviously we can talk about this because we've watched the episode. We know there, and anyone listening to the podcast, you know, you've probably watched this episode a million times. If you're brand new to to the podcast or brand new to Star Trek. Eventually, at the end, Mistral does decide to stay. So he's going to have an impact. Now, this might come into our review later on about continuity. His mere presence of being there, whether his uh, Vulcan anatomy was ever discovered, whether he was ever found out, there's going to be an impact, which just seems very uh, counter to the Prime Directive that we're used to. Right. 
they're in town and they've managed to convince uh, Tamir to actually go into town, try and get provisions, try and feed themselves uh, and not give in to savagery like that. They steal clothes, which is a lovely, uh, you know, second time I'm watching an episode with you, Paul, and there's a Vulcan stealing clothes in order to get by in time. And uh, I'd like to see if this is a streak. But um, to Paul, um, to Mir, I should say, uh, says, you know, don't speak. I will speak. I will try and sort of reduce the damage of us interacting with this culture. Now it's 1950s and the female of the group is asking that only she speaks. How successful do you think that strategy would have been? Have they been doing their research, Paul? They've done no research, have they? But then again, you know, they, they, they were supposedly there on a fact-finding mission anyway, but um, they hadn't yet got the cultural references. And I think that follows through the, through the episode. She doesn't understand the cultural references, the cultural, you know, the, the whole culture itself. Um, whereas Mistral seems to get it straight away. Yes, Mistral really is quite switched on. He, he really seems to have done the research. Even though they were studying the launch of Sputnik, he seems to have really been more focused on the culture and understanding of what's going on. Um, he seems quite an adept officer. Who, whatever his rank or whatever he was there to actually do, he seems to be very um, uh, clued in to the best possible way of working. Yes, that's that's right, and I think I think he does a good job of that. Um, as they walk through town, there's comments on what's going on around them. They see labourers and miners, uh, and they say, you know, it's amazing they even got to the point of launching Sputnik. Now, of course, it's two different countries, two different nation states, um, but uh, it, it is quite weird to think that at a time when we were still mining for coal in the ground, humanity had moved on to the point of actually shooting things into orbit. You know, there is this disparity in the technology. You know, uh, there's the zinc-lined world that Spock was talking about when we last spoke, Paul, uh, you know, is putting things into space. It's pretty crazy to think that those two things are happening at the same time. Yes, that's right. It just shows, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and and it also shows, I mean, like you're saying about the space race before, you know, being a bit of a fan of this, that when um, a few years from then and sort of in the mid-70s when they launched uh, the Skylab, uh, they realised that the Americans and the Russians' technology to get into space was totally, totally different. The Russians' was uh, technology was almost based on what was going on in, in the 1950s, uh, where the computer, you know, the Americans came into into the. Um, uh, it was when uh, they got the two ships to dock to each other. They uh, joined, uh, jumped into the uh, Russians' craft and had a look around and said, where is your computer? And they pointed to a big drum that was spinning around with nails sticking out of it that would flick switches as it spun round. And they got into space with that. I mean, the Americans at least had you know, uh, microchips of, of a sort yeah. and transistors and what have you. So, um, yeah, it was it is frightening. And to say that you can get into space uh, you know, with what they have there, well, yes, they pretty much did. And, you know, as we're recording this episode, we are now a couple of weeks out from uh, the Dragon X, the SpaceX launch, the very first commercial launch that was able to dock with the International Space Station. And you saw on the feed touch screens, which were apparently NASA were losing their mind over because they're so used to push buttons, um, which even in Enterprise now look dated. Um, Enterprise had loads of push buttons. There's very few touch screens. And now today we are seeing, you know, what is effectively iPads driving a spaceship. Uh, and you're seeing the difference in technology. It's just crazy to see. Yeah, it's a huge leap forward. Now, um, as they continue to walk along, uh, I mistook this as American football because they were commenting on a sport uh, and uh, they were commenting on how combative it sounded. But it turns out it was baseball. Uh, after all, they were listening to a baseball game, which makes perfect sense now that I think about it, but I completely got it wrong. Um, so in my notes, I had about American football and the fact that I don't know anything, but we're just going to move on from that. Um, they go into a diner. Paul, you've already mentioned that you're listening uh, or watching this episode on a slightly different format to me. Do you know what the music was when they went into the diner? What was the music on your recording? Do you happen to hear it? Oh, I did hear it, but I can't... It was just a generic 1950s song that I, I didn't really get the... It's not one I recognised. Yeah. Now, I didn't know it uh, at all, but the song that you probably heard is not the song I probably heard. Now, previous recordings, previous showings of Enterprise, they would have had, at the time that the episode was playing... 
The uh, episode aired with the song Crazy Arms by Ray Price, which is perfectly period specific and actually came out uh, about a year before the episode is set. So 1956. Perfectly fine. Unfortunately, CBS have some uh, rights issues with that song and they can't actually play it on the episode. And certainly when they want to sell it to, say, Netflix, they can't have that song on there. So if you're listening to this episode or watching this episode on Netflix, you probably heard Gently Falls by Dave Colvin. Now, Gently Falls didn't come out till 2009, but it's actually written uh, and performed in such a style that it kind of gives a, you know, a 50s feel to it. But it's a double anachronism. Not only is it wrong for 1957, it's actually wrong for the time when Enterprise aired as well. So we've got two anachronisms, both in the Star Trek universe and also in my reality as well. Uh, but I thought it was a really weird thing. Just going through IMDb, it's like one of the first goofs that you see on there. Um, so we've actually watched two completely different episodes there. That's interesting. I've, I've just got um, my... Carbon Creek up now, and I'm listening to it. But I, unless I get my Netflix up next to it, I, I wouldn't be able to um, compare that. Because I was thinking, oh, that sounds like a nice bit of music I could play in the background when I'm doing my history bit. Uh, but seeing as there seems to be some litigious stuff around it, I might have to pick another song. Uh, but uh, yes, that is uh, one big anachronism. So maybe, uh, who knows, a ripple was being caused by that. There's a lot of back and forth about how they're actually going to get food, what they're going to do. They start to realise that humans are using some paper money, some currency that seems to have value. Now, there's a really creepy guy at the bar who challenges Mistral to a pool game, um, but there was nothing in it for him, unless, of course, Tamir agrees to have a drink with him if Mistral loses. If Mistral wins, then this creepy guy will pay for everything. Now, there seems to be a lot of themes about things I'm watching with you, Paul, where there's a creepy guy hitting on a lady and objectifying her. <laughs> Last time we had Me Too guy, and now we've got this guy as well. Um, I'm not blaming you, but I'm seeing there's a lot of crossover. I see nothing wrong with these two episodes. What do you mean? I'm not an old man at all. <laughs> I wouldn't say he was hitting on her. I think that's a... No, I think it's a fair... It's a fair thing. He, he obviously... Um, he knows that they're not together in the, in the romantic sense. So it's a fair game if he wants to try and um, you know have a chat with her and talk to her, and it's appropriate for the time, uh, for the nineteen fifties. So uh, it's it's not creepy at all. If he, if he'd sort of been like seventy odd, or you know, sort of, you know maybe she was a lot younger or something, it might have been a bit weird. But uh, no, I think it's appropriate for, for for where we are. It made perfect sense. You know, you've got the guy. He you know he's got something he's playing for when they have nothing. Of course, Mistral um, is going to do well at this sport. But at first, it looks like he's going to lose. Um, you know, he gets an unlucky break first off. He's got the arrogance that, oh, it's, this is a, a child's game. I'll be absolutely fine. But his break is wrong. Eventually, the human messes up and Mistral cleans up. He's got all the trigonometry down. He even knows how to properly lean in. So he's clearly observing really well. Yeah, I mean, it's one it's one thing to say, oh yes, I, it's an easy game. He's all he's done is looked at it a few times, and instantly he knows that he needs to pocket the uh, <laughs> the the eight ball into a corner, and you have to say that you have to pocket the eight ball into a corner, not just knock it in and you know away. He knows that you take sides, you know, stripes and spots. It's it's a, a very uh, very quick. He's very quick on the uptake. I like this guy. Yeah, he he works it out really, really well. I think the the other day I saw a tweet saying, you know, if you could wake up with any power or talent, what would it be? And I think it would be him. I think it would be like being able to completely understand something after like you know watching a few minutes of it. Um, it would be a great thing to have that he's got that sense of uh, imagination and also learning. There's another um, scene where they've um, won all the money. Clearly, he won. And it just jump cuts straight to them coming out the grocery store with huge bags of shopping. So he clearly cleaned up a lot. Uh, whether he played more games with other people trying to win the money back, I don't know. Um, but it reminded me of Time's Arrow when Data sat down with the uh, poker. And rather than having this long drawn out scene with cards, he's just cleaned up and he's already won you know, the shirts off their back. And Mistral has done the exact same thing. I think it was it's just the best way of doing it. Rather than drawing it out, you just have a jump card. Of course he won. So here they've got huge bags of shopping. Uh, they have a little t discussion about cryogenics and obviously frozen f food and uh, TV dinners and all this sort of thing. 
and they're talking about um, uh, synthetic replicators and protein replic replication. Um, this I like because when they're talking about protein replication, it sounds different to the replicators we come to know later in Star Trek. The Star Trek replicator looks like magic, like it's it's energy into matter. Protein replication makes it sound like it's it's possible technology, like today's 3D printers. You take a lump of something and you can turn it into something else. Uh, would you want a uh, a protein synthesized meal, Paul, or just stick with the the cryogenically frozen TV, Minna? <laughs> I like that line. Cryogen oh, they've mastered cryogenics, um, <laughs> frozen food. So uh, I'd go with the TV dinner any day. I'm not too sure about this replicated stuff. You, oh, I don't know. Unless I see it being cooked, you know, or know what it is. Yeah, I don't know about that. Depends on what the protein is being changed, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I suppose. I suppose you're right there. Yes. I mean, I, I, I know. Uh, you know, here we are in the uh, the early uh, 21st century, and they, they've already tried to 3D print a burger. So, um, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, I think I'll take some convincing before I get to that point. Uh, maybe I'll work out like uh, the Robocop baby paste that he has to eat or something, but it still wouldn't be very appetizing. Um, we end at 15 minutes and 50 seconds, come back at 16 minutes and 26 seconds. We're now seeing them jump uh, a few months ahead, a few weeks ahead. They've now uh, ingratiated themselves into the culture. Tamir is sweeping floors. You have Mistral, who is now mining. And you have Mo fixing plumbing. But just like me, whenever I try and do any kind of plumbing, uh, as uh, uh, as a useless writer, I cannot do any DIY properly. Uh, and I really empathise with Mo because he gave up on spanners. He whipped out his laser welder and completely fixed the problem in two seconds. I really wish I had that tool. How about you, Paul? Oh, yeah, we could all do with one of them. Plumbing, I hate. I hate plumbing. I'm always soaked at the end of it. Ugh, it's water. I just can't be doing with it. Uh, this is where we get the, the footage of the nuclear bomb going off and there is a conversation between Mistral and the lady who owns the diner, the bar that they've just been in. And they're talking about how humanity um, shouldn't destroy itself. And there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, we're better than this. Maybe we can you know get past this this point in time because it's the 1950s this episode it put me in mind of all those b movies you know there's always the moral message and maybe it's just one line uh but it, it, i felt like it was a nice callback to the b movies how about you paul oh yes absolutely yeah yeah i agree with that uh, we also get an idea that the uh, lady behind the bar has a son who is a mathematics scholar and he's getting his, his maths but he's losing out on sort of payments and he's have to pay for education now, this is a wider conversation. I'm lucky enough to have gone to university, but I was one of the first few people who had to go back to loans after they did away with the grant system. So the idea of paying for education seemed natural to me. Um, I don't want it to be that way. Of course, I could do without the, the debt. Um, but still, this idea that you have to pay to get education, you have to pay to get the privilege of knowledge, um, it still seems you know, a little bit weird that a scholar isn't just being let in because he's he's performed really well and later on in the episode we find out he did better than everyone else in his, his class. That there isn't some sort of you know pre play pl plan for someone who's done that well. Any thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah, I think uh, I'm I'm in a slightly different position there because I didn't go to university, but um, my my elder son uh, started last year. And they've changed the rules slightly on uh, paying, you know, how you pay back your loan and all this type of thing. Um, I I think it's wrong as well. I think you shouldn't have to pay a lot of money to just to be educated to a higher degree, especially if you are if you have that ability to do so, you know, to to, to take in that knowledge and and, and be educated that way. Um, I think it's it's totally totally wrong. Um, I think that. To be fair, I think it starts earlier than that. I think it's when you get into um, what in the UK we call secondary school, so ages 11 to uh, 16 to 18. Um, they they still, to this day, split you into two groups, one that can they think that can do well and one that they think that won't do so well, and they tailor the exams to those people. Now, that happened when I was younger, and I... Um, I was put in the lower group and I maxed out on every single uh, uh, t test and exam I took. So I feel as though I could have been given, uh, been put into the higher uh, group 
um, and got a higher grade when I came out of school, but I was held back by that. And I think uh, financial reasons should not hold people back uh, in education as well. Just because you can't you know, afford to take it, you're being held back. You should be able to go forward um, and you know, go as far as you can uh, in the education system. Uh, without having to pay money for it, it's like um, my one of my favourite things is, is uh, motor racing. That's the same thing there. You need lots of money to get into it, and providing you have lots of money, you can go into motor racing no problem. If you are talented and have no money, you're driving a taxi in India somewhere. Um, you know, and there are far more uh, talented people out there uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, that have been held back for that for, you know, for financial reasons. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a. I'll get off my soapbox now. It is a bit of a thing for me. That, thank you very much. No, it, it it still baffles me because history is littered with people who weren't given that chance. Luckily, they managed to find a break, however it might be. Einstein was a pattern clerk, uh, as they like to say in lots of different movies. You know, people can come from so many backgrounds. So why not make? the extra education available to everyone regardless of money it's it's still baffling to me uh, that uh, so much emphasis is put on can you afford it not should you get it um so yes no thank you very much that that, that that's the point i was hoping to get to uh, right um we now cut to the scene that i really laughed because i forgot it was in here but it, it almost felt like it's a vulcan sitcom set in the 1950s um uh, hi honey i'm home um you know they're all sitting there mistral is sort of in a prayer position but watching tv and cowboy shows um uh, tamir has just come in mo then tells us where his nickname comes from and the resemblance in his haircut um and uh they're, they're talking about how uh uh, Mistral is going to leave because he's fed up with debating this uh, violent culture over uh, a, a potential empathy, a betterness that this species seems to have, which is a, a very trekky conversation. But it's all going on whilst these three Vulcans are sitting around in 50s clothes, um, enjoying their sitcom. And, you know, uh, I had to fix this lady's plumbing and I think she's hitting on me, that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's just, it was so weird to have the big high philosophy and the really silly circumstantial uh, scene playing out, which all ends with Mistral leaving under false pretenses to get a subspace transceiver to improve the aerial because I love Lucy is going to be on, which is a great reference for the Star Trek fans. And I'm going to hand it over to Paul. Yeah, I I've, um, I just put my hand up there because I, before we leave this scene, I wanted to say uh, I love the line where uh, Mistral says, you know, uh, she said uh, to me, I said to him, oh, you, you've just been sat there watching that you know, television thing. And he says, I'm doing research. And I thought, I really need to convince my wife that TV, watching TV is research. <laughs> Although, funny enough, that's exactly what it was in this case, because I've been watching the Star Trek episode to do research for this podcast. So, <laughs> yes, it is research. It is absolute research. <laughs> You know, that, uh, that's all part of what these godlike entities are after. They're trying to find something. So, uh, they're trying to see something in history. Yeah. Oh, but I would, I would, I would pay a double the Netflix fee to have uh, at home with the Vulcans, uh, being put on TV. Uh, <laughs> hi, honey, I'm Vulcan. You know, it's just, oh man, can you, it's set in the fifties with these three. It would be fantastic. Like we say, Mistral is still kicking around. You know, maybe he found a human wife and now he's got, you know, a neighbor who's across the street. Maybe he's a, an Andorian who also crash landed because they were on a similar mission. And uh, the Andorian is always annoying him and, you know, letting his tribble, you know, um, poo on the garden. And, uh, you know, it's constant back and forth and they hate each other. Um, and nobody notices, obviously, there's a blue Andorian next door. I don't know how that works. Um, it also uh, uh, got me thinking in that uh, with Mistral staying behind, I was going to mention this later, but uh, I'll do it now. Uh, in our previous episode with Little Green Men, uh, Jarman and I were sort of kicking around this idea that if they were going to make another Star Trek show, why not make, and if they're going to do Section 31, which we weren't totally sold on, but why not make a 1950s X-Files that's where Section 31 begins. You know, the US Army found this crashed spaceship. There was uh, information on a pad, data pad that Nog had of this future federation that seems like it's a great idea, but maybe needs a little protection. And Section 13 
would later become Section 31, and maybe Mistral from this episode would then come into that. There would be like crossover. Each season would be a new decade, perhaps a new part of a century as we lead up to Enterprise's era. Um, so I was thinking, you know, maybe there was a comedy season with uh, Mistral and you know his human wife who then discover this section, well, by then I suppose section 14, section uh, 15. Uh, as the decades go on, they go up as they're trying to prepare humanity ready for uh, the Vulcans to properly arrive. Now, I'm going to tease uh, our listeners to a, a future episode of this show. I, I, I'm not sure which order we're doing this in, uh, Dan, so you'll be able to tell me. Um, but there is... Uh, a, a crossover, uh, well it wasn't crossover was it, they were, they were trying to create a another show from Star Trek, the original series, um, yes. and we'll get to that in a, in a few episodes time I'm sure. If it might be, yeah, two episodes yeah. time, yes. So, um, so yeah, and that was set in the sort of 60s um, period where they were going to split off a, cu- a couple of characters to create uh, another show. That was alien sort of based and maybe a little bit of time jumping around based. So yeah, it, it could have been, it could have been done. I think there's, there's such, um, ripe material for having a historically set, but still somehow Star Trek related, you know, with secret goings on, um, a show, a TV show to go alongside everything else that seems to be coming our way. Cause at the moment, I think we're waiting on now four different shows. Uh, Strange New Worlds, uh, we've got two animated shows, and then this Section 31, which uh, seems to sort of go in and out of the the feeds at the moment. And no one's talking about it, and suddenly everyone's talking about it. Um, but yeah, why not? Uh, just throw in a new TV show, make the TV show they were going to spin off from our future episode to come. I'm sure we'll discuss this more uh, when we get to the episode proper. Absolutely. Um Obviously, Tamir finds out that Mistral was lying. That's a whole other thing right there. A Vulcan who was lying, who was omitting the truth. Uh, but Mistral is learning our human ways, so I suppose we'll let him off for that. Um, there's another reference to, you're not a Martian, are you? When uh, the lady behind the bar uh, is trying to work out why he wears this hat every single day. Um, you know, bad hair hair day. You know, he, he's, She's seen Mo. Surely there's some other thing going on uh, with his hair as well. Um, but if you're not a Martian, are you? This has been a theme for the past couple of episodes where any alien, regardless of who they are, are called Martians, which is a great little uh, inside joke. You know, or, Again, all those B-movies where an alien, regardless of where they come from, is always Martian. Um, so it's just a, it was a nice little pick up there. Yeah, I think, I think that comes from a lot of the um, 1950s and uh, maybe before that um, uh, science fiction books and, and writings. Because obviously Mars was you know, a, a mystery and, and it could possibly have been uh, colonised at some point. Uh, it's our nearest neighbour that could hold life. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's obvious that they go for Martians every time. But it's not just in this, like you say, this series. It's in other series as well. This scene finishes on a kiss between the two of them because they've been on this date to, to a baseball game. Um, we find out her tragic story, you know, the, the, the husband who left, you know, her son who hasn't seen... Um, his father and we're sort of getting a reason why Mistral was probably going to want to stay Tamir calls him up on it says you shouldn't be doing this this is still impacting you know you need to stop seeing her just as uh, Tamir is going into work she sits down she sees a candle and she starts to meditate only for her son to then come in and they seem seem to strike up a friendship because of meditation because he seems to genuinely seem interested in something that uh, probably at first she would have discounted humans as being interested in the idea that you had to steady your thoughts and calm yourself. And she comes up with the line of you'll be amazed to find out what a disciplined mind can achieve. As you've been saying, Paul, that, you know, humanity were able to send things into orbit because we put our minds to it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I do like this, um, this little interaction between them. Um, she then sees that there's potential in this young man that he's, you know, he's very inquisitive and loves to soak up knowledge. And yeah, it's an, I, you know, she gets a bit of respect for him and, and wants to help him. I like this, that. Um, so far, quite a, quite a slow, sort of underrated episode. Then sort of jumps up the gear. Then we get the, you know, the big action piece. There is uh, an explosion in the mines. 
and loads of miners are trapped down below. And we get another Star Trek speech about not interfering, let's just leave them to let them die. And Tamir makes a really um, harsh, really cold statement that, you know, even if you let them live, they only live to about 60, these humans. So really, what's the point? You know, you're only saving them for a few more years of life. Those those miners are old, just let them die. Um, it seemed pretty harsh. I mean, I know that the uh, Prime Directive exists to prevent uh, people from, you know, uh, interfering in life and death situations. But to then go one further and say that at 60... These species don't live very long. Yeah, just let them die. Just as Mistral uh, is trying to convince her. It did make me think, though, Vulcans are well known as stronger than humans. Surely he's able to just physically dig through the rubble. You know, his hands should be stronger. He should be able to swing a pickaxe far stronger and a shovel uh, than any human. He wouldn't need to resort to the extremes of going to get a phaser from this crash shuttle and cutting his way through. It seemed an unnecessary risk. Your thoughts, Paul? I think uh, you, you're actually wrong there, Dan. Uh, although people, yeah, they are stronger than, than humans, even Spock has a bit of difficulty moving a bit of rock around <laughs> every now and again. So, um, so I think, yeah, there is a limit to even what Vulcans can lift. And the, yeah, he was cutting through a lot of rock to get through to those um, uh, trapped miners. So, yeah, I think uh, it might have been in a you know if you'd seen the people. Um, you know, being covered there and then. He might be able to move a few rocks out of the way, but to try and cut the way through uh, a big bit of rock, you're going to need more. That's very true. I mean, none of those rocks were made of uh, the heavy polystyrene that you saw from the 60s, so maybe, you know, oh, okay. maybe it's different ki- different kind of rock. So there we go. Um, Tapol, uh does give in, but she finds a smarter solution. She actually guides him using the tricorder and finds another way through to the back of the tunnel that won't be easily observed so that he can safely use... Um, the phaser on a dispersal radius um, which uh, if anyone knows your maths uh, a radius would be uh, a different term to what you'd actually a dispersal pattern maybe Um, so it's a bit of a slip up there I don't know whether that was uh, just you know the writers just getting the wrong word or it just sounded better to say radius I don't know but very very odd Um, we stop there at 31 minutes 46 seconds as Mistral saves the miners we then come back at 31 minutes 55 seconds and it's stated that three months have passed so these Vulcans are really getting into the culture they've stayed behind some Tellarites have um, come across the original distress signal that they sent when they crashed but they've got three days and a Vulcan science ship will return to collect them this gets uh, common knowledge and the boy then speaks to Tamir who says that um, I hear you're going home where exactly is that? And we hear we're going up north. Um, so maybe they think that all Vulcans are uh, Canadian? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All Vulcans. They don't say oot, do they? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's been a big time gap. Maybe someone said oot. Maybe Mo said it and uh, it just made them think, oh, it's Canadians. That's probably what it is. <laughs> yeah, because they have them funny eyebrows. But we find that the tragic story of the boy is just getting worse. He now can't find the money. He has to resort to uh, being a miner. Maybe he could try next year, but there's no guarantee. Tamir seems to have come round to it. It's been three months. Maybe she's now becoming ingrained. Because she saved the lives of the miners, she's now on the same sort of wavelength as uh, Mistral. She goes back to the ship and she takes out a small black Velcro pad, which she will then go on to uh, sell as a patent for this brand new hook loop technology. I know that's coming up a bit later, Paul, but do you want to talk about sort of, uh, you know, why this doesn't make any sense, uh, that Velcro pads were actually already an American patent at the time? Uh, They were painted two years before, um, which is what I was just looking up then, actually, uh, in 1955 by a Swiss engineer. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it's a bit strange that <laughs> it wouldn't work. I mean, they might be able to buy the idea from um, Tamir, but um, he couldn't patent it. So maybe maybe he's fallen for a, a bit of a trick there. Uh, maybe something about Velcro from Vulcan. Maybe vulcanized Velcro. I don't know. Um, maybe there's something different there. Uh, maybe it's made from a, a material they didn't quite understand. That's not quite the same. 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it, maybe it's another anachronism. Perhaps uh, all of this is some time dispersal or something like that. They have the discussion that they are going to leave, but Mistral wants to stay behind. And I think it's Mo who comes out with the best response to this. It's like, uh, so uh, you're just going to stay here and study their culture. Alcohol, fish sticks, nuclear annihilation. You know, he, that escalated pretty quickly. The, those three things go hand in hand. <laughs> Frozen fish sticks as well. Yeah, it's, that's really weird. <laughs> that's how. That's how. That's how society just falls apart. <laughs> of course. Well, we uh, in England uh, understand that uh, it's fish fingers, of course, and uh, and uh, fish do have fingers, as we all know. <laughs> how well? How do they count? I mean, otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How does a fish count? Um, he plans to stay. They allude to the fact that actually he wants to stay with Maggie, and that's what I would read as the character. But he does give this other explanation that he would go into the larger cities, increase his wealth of knowledge. Otherwise, you know, he's going to be um, uh, going back home with no guarantee of returning to Earth. In fact, the next survey ship probably wouldn't be around for another 20 years. Not until the 1970s, if you're taking this timeline as it is. Which, weirdly, is the only decade in this uh, century, the latter part of the century, which I'm not going to cover. There is no episode set in the 70s. So I would kind of like to see that. I would like to see Mistral in the 70s coming back. You know, had he gone back to the Vulcan, coming back in the 70s, a follow-up episode. Your thoughts, Paul? Yeah, that would have been good, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm trying to think, would he have been a street cop? You know, like you know, a yeah. detective, you know, driving a car around San Francisco or, you know. He meets this, this really charismatic cop called TJ Hooker and they they strike up a friendship. <laughs> yes. Uh, he said, why do you keep wearing that hat? <laughs> yeah, that that would be um, good. That would be a good matchup. TJ and the Vulcan. TJ and the Vulcan. Nice. Um, just going back to that to that point about Mistral, do you think that he would have stayed with Maggie, or do you think that he would have gone on and said what he was going to say, or he was just trying to convince them? I think he he was more curious about the culture in general, so I think he would have moved on and, and found a different place to stay and, and try to find out more about the culture. Then when he realised there, there was going to be you know, different countries would have different cultures, I think he might have moved around the world, just kept on the move a bit. No, yeah, I completely agree. Um, he's he could have had both, I suppose. If her son was going off to to college uh, with the money from this Velcro Vulcan Velcro, um, she might not have a reason to stay in Carbon Creek either. Maybe she would sell up and travel with him. She would become his partner, maybe. Uh, and you know that would be a great another time team. So we've got another TV show right there. We've got a home with the Vulcans. We've got our Section Thirty One crossover, uh, possibly TJ Hooker and the Vulcan. And we've got another show where it's you know a Vulcan and uh, his lady companion traveling the world. Um, it, it all works out. You know it all can all come together. Uh, the Vulcans arrive to collect Tamir and Mo, and they've got these really cool sort of leather jackets, V-shaped leather, leather jackets. They're not as ornate as we normally um, see a Vulcan wearing, um, certainly not in an official capacity. We saw them earlier at the very beginning of the episode, but you don't really get to see them till this scene. And it, they almost kind of look like Vulcan bikers that are crossed with a, uh, you know, a craftwork tribute act. Um, I, they're, they're very, very odd design. Um, but I think they, they feel more Vulcan than what actual Vulcan robes tend to look like. Your thoughts? Yes, that's right. I think they've they've done a good job here. Actually, they, they've sort of um, given the characters a bit more depth and given the Vulcans a bit more depth as well by showing these different uh, different robes and things. It, it just made sense because because they're so triangular, they 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 would be sort of mathematically shaped. So it kind of makes sense for Vulcans, for me at least, to think that they would design clothes that would be mathematical. Uh, they tell a lie again, another lie from a Vulcan, but this time it's Tamir saying that that two people died in the crash and that they have incinerated the bodies. So Mistral is still out there. Uh, he's enjoying whatever life came his way, and we end at thirty nine minutes and forty seconds. Right, uh, that was the episode. Any other thoughts before we sort of move on, Paul? Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Um, there's a couple of... Th well, there's one thing I'd like to do with it. Um, I'm still in the throes of working it out here, but uh, they come to the end of the episode, and obviously they, it, it, this has all been a story by T'Pol. And yeah. 
they, it's a bit of a recurring theme with this, but they try and work out how old T'Pol is. Because, you know, obviously, um, uh, Trip says, oh, you know, how old are you? And, and so, uh, you know, Archer comes in and says, oh, that's just a, uh, a secret, you know, um, of classified information. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do some maths here. So if you look at T'Pol, uh, as she is in Enterprise, yeah, uh, she was born in 2088. Now, yep. Enterprise is set in 2151. That makes her actual age of 63. So let, let's call it yep. mid-60s. Um, if Tamir looks the same age as uh, T'Pol, we, let's assume mm-hmm. that she is 63, then she has been born in our year of 1894. Yep. So by my reckoning, the, um, the because it's her great-grandmother, her grandmother and then her great uh, grandmother and then her great grandmother are also sixty three at the time that they have had their children. Yeah, yeah. ish, ish. Yeah, yeah. So w- when he says, "Haven't you missed out a couple of um, uh, you know, um, generations?" It would skip. Uh, the trip says, uh, "Oh, you know, you've missed a couple of generations there. How can she be your great grandmother?" You know, the, and then. Jonathan Archer comes in and says, oh, don't forget how old Vulcans uh, live. 63, having kids at 63 as a human being is a bit of a push. It's not that that outrageous when it comes to to, uh, Vulcans, really. She's not that out, not particularly that old when they can live up to, I think it's a couple of hundred years. Yeah, I think uh, think, uh, 200 or 200 or so um, is an an average. Um, I think Mm. we have seen a few Vulcans who are a lot older than that, I think about 230, 240. Yeah, so uh, it's it's you know not it's not within the realms of um, of improbability that uh, or probability mm. I should say that that, um, that the ages seem to work out. Absolutely, twenty eighty eight is not that far away either. Before Tapal gets born, that's true. That's true. We're not far off at all. Um, that means around about now her mother is born, isn't it? If they're all having children roughly at the age of sixty. Uh, yes, that's yeah, true. So, yeah, to Paul's mum, who we will later find out when we do our watch through on Enterprise, um, would be born around about now. The, the time I'm calling about 2020. Amazing. <laughs> right, uh, let's come to our first sort of rating review uh, criteria: uh, continuity. Based on this story, Paul, how much continuity do you feel has been disrupted or is just played into? I, I think continuity has not been affected by this uh, at all. They, they kept themselves um, under the radar. Uh, the main characters were off the planet before they really um, had any effect. And Mistral, I think, because he's never mentioned again, he managed to wander around the uh, the, the, the world, gathering information and um, and basically staying out of history. Absolutely. I mean, he should still... Depending on the age he was when he when they crash landed, he would possibly still be alive when first contact happens. Yeah, had absolutely. he survived, you know, world wars and and whatnot. And that would have been oh, that would have been good if they'd come down in first contact and he had been one of the people in the actual, um, you know, group. And they looked at him and go, "Well, actually, <clears throat> I've been here a while. What took you so long?" Yeah. Actually, it's an aged Tamir who was leading the the craft coming back, and uh, he says, "Oh, you said it was going to be twenty years when you came back, but uh, here it is. Um, you're a little bit late." Um, <laughs> yeah, I think because there's no time travel involved, because there's no mechanics, there's no trickery, there's nothing specifically changing. Whatever has happened has happened. It's just a story. It's just you know recounting what um, is already part of whatever Star Trek canon is. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with you. There's there's no impact because it's always going to happen. It was always going to be that way. And we still have that caveat at the end: is did it really happen? Even though you see T'Pol with a handbag, did it really happen, or did it happen that way? Well, like we say, uh, you know, there was no sign of winter going on. So maybe the story did happen, but maybe a few facts have been fudged. Well, it's it's been a few hundred years in the telling. You know, it becomes legend rather than the story. Vulcan Whispers. Interesting. I like that. Um, right. Um, so, 
we've done our continuity now we move on to alterations now again alterations doesn't mean we have to change the episode perhaps something you'd like to see expanded we've already alluded to many tv shows you could spin out of this but is there anything else from watching this episode paul that you would want to see explored or changed uh no i think as a story being told by topal i think it holds together very well i don't think there was be any change would be irrelevant it's her story um she's told it uh, there's no need to change it no, yeah, I, I I really was engaged by this episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, th- watching these scenes, even if you didn't have the narration by Paul, that it was, um, you know, uh, we had a little tagline saying, you know, uh, 200 years earlier. And it was just a whole episode set in the 50s. And then at the very end of the episode, we have like a, you know, Paul's reading the diary of a, a grandmother or something like that. Um, it, it still would hold up. You know the fact that T'Pol is narrating it, and there's this whole back and forth between Archer and and uh, and Trip. You know it's nice, but there's other ways it could have happened. I just enjoy it. I think it, the main focus of the episode. You've got the deep philosophical stuff. You've got your comedy elements. You've got your sitcom with your Vulcans. You've got uh, real history, which lines up with all the research we've just seen as well. Sputnik being there. Um, yeah, there's no alterations I would want to make. As far as things I want to see explored, yeah, sure, I would love to find out Mistral's story. I don't know the, the books, I don't know if they've ever come back to this uh, in Star Trek books and wider fiction, um, but it seems right for the plucking, and if no one's done it, uh, I want to call dibs. Yeah, definitely, definitely. There is only one scene that I would like altered. Um, now... A few years ago, people would have said, ah, you're, just, you know, you're a square, an old fuddy-duddy or whatever. Take out the scene where T'Pol's getting changed behind a sheet, and you can see her uh, shadow on the sheet, and she's obviously topless. Yes. That, nowadays, is not a, it, you know, would not be allowed. Uh, and I'm talking about in the last six months, you know, the, the Me Too movement as well, all of this coming through. Uh, and I think that at the start, I think um, Enterprise, I think, is worse for having that sort of thing in it all the way through the the episode. You see a lot of, not topless shots, but there's close to it and shower scenes. It's not something that's needed in Star Trek. And it's not because it's old-fashioned. It's because it's inappropriate and it's it's showing women in in a light that, you know, on TV doesn't need to be shown, I think. Um, I'm quite happy for it to be a family show and let's keep it that way. And things like that are not really, I've never, I've never been comfortable watching things like that in Star Trek. There's a lot of other stuff as well back in the, in the original series, but that's a bit different. Um, you know, this was done in, in the year 2000. It should have, you know, the, the show's been written by 14 year olds dressed, you know, dressed up as <laughs> real men in, in, in a dark room somewhere. Uh, let's keep that out of Star Trek. The, when we first came across Enterprise in the previous, um, season, I was mentioning like how Enterprise seemed like it was trying to cater to a new, new audience and pandering to it. And yeah, that, it, that's the thing that grinds you. And I think this is something we'll probably come across a lot when we do our, our big rewatch of Enterprise in order that there's so many scenes that are gratuitous and it won't add anything to it. The decontamination scenes are the ones that really come to my mind. Um, it, there's literally no point to it. It could have been re- written out or it could have been written in a far better way. Um, something maybe given something to the plot, you know, that there are decontaminants, that there's infections and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's there's one scene in a later episode of, of Enterprise which you'll you'll get to. I probably won't be on it, uh, but I'll mention it now. Where Hoshi jumps through a hatch, and she you know, she comes through a hatch in the ceiling. As she comes through the hatch in the ceiling, her top gets caught on the on the hatch, and she ends up topless. That is ridiculous. We do not need that. Oh, let's laugh at the woman with the boobs out. No, 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 no. We don't that- need that sort of thing. Any excuse to get you know topless women on? No. No, that's just wrong. In the, in this type of uh, of series, is totally wrong. No, brilliant, brilliant things. Um, right, uh, we're going to come to recommendations then. Uh, first off, we've got recommendations to Star Trek fans, to non-Star Trek fans, and then the wider perspective. Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? So, first to Star Trek fans, would you recommend this episode, Paul? Absolutely. It's a typical. Um, a uh, Star Trek episode where we see people go back in time. Okay, this isn't back in time, but it's that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's a slightly retelling of, of a, a standard trope for Star Trek. So, yeah, no problem with this. Yep, 
likewise it's it's a nice sort of uh, alternate history if you're not believing the story or it's actual history and it's just now coming to light uh, either way it's enjoyable as a piece of fiction um, it's nice to see as you said earlier that it's the Vulcans who have to strive and live on this alien planet it's kind of weird to see their perspective and, and seeing the humans as the aliens um, so I really enjoyed it, and it, it sucked me in uh, a lot more than I thought it was going to. Um, I, I didn't uh, didn't think I was going to get as invested in it as I as I was. So to non Star Trek fans, do we feel that there's an appeal to a wider audience? Do you feel like it's it relies too heavily on knowledge, other knowledge of Star Trek? Yeah, it doesn't really go heavy on the Star Trek stuff. So in other words, mm. beaming down or. Um, phasers or anything like this. It doesn't have any of them in it. So you could show this to, to a non-Star Trek audience and say, look, this is an alien race that has come down, hidden in the, you know, uh, on the planet, and then left again. And I think, pe- I think non- non-Star Trek people will get that. Uh, the only reference to, you know, Star Trek is really at the beginning, at the end. Uh, and, and that's only just the, you know, sit down, oh, tell us a story, and oh, that was a good story, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, People could watch this and, and see it just as a an alien uh, comes to Earth and tries to survive and leaves uh, story, which has been done before in, in other things. E.T., for example. In fact, when the the ship takes off and, and they leave, it did put me in mind of that last scene from, from E.T. I think there's a lot of uh, tropes that have sort of entered into any general science fiction story that you could easily see in this episode. You can follow the characters, you can see their their easy opinions. You know, Tamir is against involvement because uh, Mistral uh, isn't, and uh, he's he's willing to integrate. Mo is just the figure of fun, and uh, you know, got all the other characters with these relatable stories. Um, you know, the kid who can't go to college, the mum who was walked out on. So many different things. They may be cliche, but they work. They work so well. Correct. Okay, that brings us to the end on our review for this particular episode. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for joining me on this one. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been uh, such a pleasure re-watching this episode again, which I, I must admit had forgotten about. And uh, it's got me a little peaked a little bit more into, into watching maybe a few more episodes of, of, uh, of Enterprise. So, yeah, thank you for uh, inviting I'll me. I'll have to twist your arm, maybe come back on for a proper Enterprise rewatch later on. Um, right, so we've got our last criteria. We are going to set up for the next episode. I'm on my own for this one, there's no guests, but maybe the week after we'll see Paul return as well. We've got Season 1, Part 2, Episode 6. We're going back to past tense, but this time it's the small segment in 1967. We're going to 23 minutes and 47 seconds. And I will see you then. Thank you very much for listening, and join me next time in the other time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But, if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.